start this morning with uh, probably um, the most uh, fitting way that I can, and that is help. Um, if you know this passage, it is very difficult, very confusing. What's interesting, I, I've told a couple of the elders um, two things. One is that I have spent weeks and weeks <laughs> studying for this message, studying this passage, uh, last night, I went to bed feeling like, you know, I think I've got this thing down and I've got this opinion. Uh, there's just this one little article I want to read and it threw me in a tailspin again. So what's going to happen is after the service, the, the rest of the elders are going to be here to answer all the questions and clear everything up for you. Uh, and I'm going to be at lunch. So they will have uh, fun with that. Um, this is a, uh, uh, I had a lot of quotes, and I'm going to read several quotes, but um, this is a very difficult passage, uh, Daniel chapter 9. Let me just read one quote from one commentary. It says, reading commentaries on the last four verses of Daniel 9 is akin to entering a bewildering maze. So many choices of ways to take, so many blind alleys and dead ends, which is the way out? In A.D. 400, the brilliant church father Jerome simply listed nine conflicting opinions of the great teachers of the church and left it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. <laughs> and that was long before rationalism, higher criticism, malarianism, uh, which is not a disease, uh, and dispensationalism, which is also not a disease. Um, and so this is... Um, uh, this is a, uh, th- th- these are some, some, some high weeds. And you may say, Lewis, why in the world then would we even go over this? Why would we even talk about this? And one of the things that we're committed to at Single Mountain Bible Church is faithfully going verse by verse through the Bible. And because it's in the Bible, we believe that it's profitable and that it's good for us to look at. So we are going to dig in this morning and to look at this. Now, what I want you to know is that um, uh, you know, part of this prophecy, um, and, and as we dig in you'll see there's, there's kind of three parts to this prophecy, but part of this pro- prophecy is about the second coming of Christ. And one of the things that have just been kind of uh, lingering on in my heart and soul as I've been studying this is, is I thought about the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees knew the Old Testament really, really well. They studied the Scriptures. They knew the prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ. And yet when Jesus Christ was there in front of them, they missed it. They didn't believe it because Jesus was not what they were thinking He would be. And so one of the things I want to be careful about, and this is always true about prophecy in the future, is we have to be careful because what I think I'm 100% sure of is that one day we're going to look back and be like, yeah, that wasn't like what I thought it would be. <laughs> so I want us to give each other grace. Um, the, the, the coming of Christ and what millennium we are or are not in or this sort of thing, it, it is a secondary issue. It should not divide us as a church. The, the key here, the key here, is that as we read this passage, it should build in us um, a, a sense of hope. A hope that God is who he said he is, that he is a promise-keeping God, that he does hold the future. This is not the same kind of hope um, that the people in Vegas uh, gave some of us as Tennessee fans, that we would win that game yesterday. Didn't happen. 
This is also not the kind of hope um, where, you know, my wife had been gone for 10 days and I was desperately wanting her back. Um, and she got back on Thursday evening. Um, because in that hope, there's a little bit of twinge of, oh, it may not happen. The hope we find in the Bible is not a wishing, it is a knowing. And so as we study these scriptures, as we look at this, I hope it builds um, hope in us. So, it is interesting. Um, I, I, just one more, uh, one more thing that I want to say before we get in. Uh, I, I called and consulted many people, uh, theologians that I know, um, about these uh, verses. I probably read 10 plus commentaries. Uh, I, I called a friend of mine who's, and I won't mention his name because he might kill me for saying this, but he teaches, he's taught at a seminary, he teaches at a Bible college now. He, he holds a view that's uh, uh, not mine, but he, here's what he told me. He said, if somebody who holds the other view came and put a gun up to my head, I'd hold the other view. Now, what he was telling now, this man would, would take a bullet for a lot of things in the Scripture, the things that are clear, inerrancy of the Word. And, and men and women who, who love God's Word, who believe in its inerrancy, who believe in its infallibility, who study these Scriptures, disagree. And what's interesting in those ten commentaries I read, they, none of them disagree agree with one another about everything. So, so again, again, we are in... We are in, I am in high weeds, not you. You just get to laugh and make fun of me. So, um, so this, this text is widely debated, but what I want to start off with is some conclusions that I do think are essential. That I do think are essential. And I want you to hear just from the outset before we dig in uh, to the text. Um, one, and this is essential, Christ will one day return. He will one day return. And he will, and, and when he returns, he will come in all of his glory. He will rule in an eternal kingdom that is never fading, that's imperishable, that is being kept for us. We believe this and stand firm in this. So, so that's not debatable. We know this. Uh, th- this next one is debated in some circles, although not many. And, and I want you to hear me from the outset say this. I do believe that as I've read the Scriptures, not just Daniel 9, but as I've read the whole Scripture, particularly Romans 9 through 11, that there is a special place for ethnic Israel. Um, that gets fuzzy on what that looks like as it's played out, but I think it's clear in Scripture. And this prophecy that we see this morning, it is for the people of Israel, but it has some implications uh, for us. Now, the third thing is this. Um, my leanings on how I interpret Daniel 9 comes from other texts in the Bible. And I think that's important for you to know. I think it's hard just with Daniel 9 to make definitive statements. In fact, I don't know anybody who feels comfortable about the definitive statements they're making here, but I just want to tell you, it takes other work um, in other passages that are also difficult, like Matthew 24 or the book of Revelation. So, how we interpret, how we look at this should not divide us in ways that actually divide the body. 
uh, we should be able to have healthy discussions, walk arm in arm with one another, fellowship with one another, uh, and the divisions that this text may cause for us theologically um, are lower level uh, issues that shouldn't divide us. So let's jump in and look at the context. The context is really important. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 through 4, uh, if you remember from last week, we have Daniel. It says, in the first year of Darius, um, he was the king over the Chaldeans, that uh, in the first year of his reign, Daniel, in verse 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. So what we have is that Daniel, there are two major events going on in his life that makes him go to the Lord in prayer. If you remember, if you've been with us through our study of the book of Daniel, uh, the, the Israelites are in captivity in Babylon. And what happened is that the Medes and the Persians have come in and have taken over. And so there's a new regime And so because of that, Daniel is praying and saying, okay, Lord, God, what's going on here? There's this new regime. How much longer? Not only that, but he had uh, the book of Jeremiah, which is amazing to me. And he saw in the book of Jeremiah that there would be 70 years. And he was good at math. And we're going to have to be good at math, as you'll see in a minute. Um, You'll have to help me. Um, but he realized that the time for this was almost over, so he went to the Lord in prayer, in prayer for his people because his people were being punished for their sins. And we saw that last week as he repented for his people's sin. And then later he, he claimed the promises of God for his people and was bidding uh, in prayer to the Lord that this captive, captivity would be over. So that is the background. And then we jump to verse 20 through 23. And this is just amazing to me. It says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Daniel prayed, and God answered Daniel's prayer. And this is amazing. I mean, I can't even imagine um, going to the Lord in prayer, uh, praying just my heart in gut-wrenching fashion, um, for, for you or for revival, and then all of a sudden uh, I feel something or someone in the room, and boom, it's Gabriel. So it got Daniel's attention. Even though he was bewildered and tired, this got Daniel's attention and would get your attention and my attention. And here's what Gabriel says, and we're going uh, to look at these uh, verses, the first two and then uh, the last two. So the first two, notice this, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. And your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern 
that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild the Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be 70 weeks. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with the plaza moat, even in times of distress. Now, Daniel, if you remember in his prayer, he is only praying. God, when is the end of this exile going to take place? And in Gabriel's response, Gabriel gives him much more. Do you see that? Gabriel just didn't answer his prayer. Gabriel gave him way, way more. Notice this. He, he tells him, hey, yes, here's when the, the, the holy city, here's where the temple will be rebuilt. But also notice that he gives him this vision into the Messiah. And if we keep reading, not only to the Messiah, but till the end of the ages. And so as Daniel is pleading here with God on behalf of his people, God says, not only is the exile going to end, my promises don't just end there. My promises to you and your people go far beyond that. Far beyond what, you're, what you could imagine. Far beyond what you yourself could conjure up in your mind. Notice as well. Notice as well. It says 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. And notice there are six things in this passage that these weeks have been decreed or set apart for. Notice this. The first thing is to finish transgression. To finish transgression. To make an end to sin. And to make an atonement for iniquity. Now what does this sound like? Do you hear it? Do you hear the gospel? <laughs> the gospel here? This sounds like the death of Jesus. That because of Jesus and because of Jesus' work on the cross, not only these people, the Jewish people, but brothers and sisters, you and me as well, Think of this, that because of that, transgression can be finished. An end to sin and an atonement for iniquity. Although the cross did these things, I don't believe that it's... Um, this is where we start to get into some of the weeds. Some people look at these verses already here at the beginning and say, yep, no, the cross accomplished these things, but not fully. And I think there's some merit to that, right? That we see from the book of Romans, for example, um, my sin is no longer counted against me. My sin has been done away with, but yet I still sin. So there's an already, and then there's a not yet. One day, my sin will completely be gone. As we look at the next three, uh, it takes us even more into that whatever's going on in this 70 weeks, that it's, it's, it's beyond the cross, it's beyond Jesus. Look at this for just a moment. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that taken place? Everlasting righteousness. Has vision and prophecy been sealed up? has the most holy or most holy place, as the NASB um, translates it, 
been anointed. And as we look at these things, almost all scholars agree that all of these things have not taken place yet. So, here we go. You ready? Uh, if you're really good at math, raise your hands. No, just, just kidding. But you're going to need to be able to um, add and multiply with me this morning. So these are the goals. Uh, this is the goal of the 70 weeks that has been prophesied here. And, and so one of the things that we have to look right off the bat is this. It says 70, all of our translations say 70 weeks. But in the original language, the word week is not used here. Um, what is used here is 77s is the word that is used. And all scholars agree that it's not 70 weeks, but it's 77s, 77 years. So let's multiply. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, 70 times 7, 490, 490 years is what is, is what is laid out here. So that's what we're looking at. 490 years. Now, um, we get this number from several different places. And again, this is not uh, debated um, all that much. Um, and, and we get that from earlier um, in this book of Daniel. Daniel is speaking in chapter 9. He's talking about years. Um, in Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Um, sorry, I lost my place here. Verses 20. Uh, and 21, um, notice this. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. They were servants to him and his sons until the, until the rule of the kingdom in Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. One of the things that I think is being alluded to here is um, that the Lord is punishing Israel for 70 Sabbaths. That one of, the things, one, of the, one of the things that Israel had done and they were being punished for is that they weren't holding to the word of the Lord and they had neglected the land. And so what we see and what's going on is that God is punishing them um, in relation to their sin. Now, um, okay... So, 490 years. Let's push forward even more to understand this text. What we see now is that these 77 years, these 490 years, are split into three different groupings. Did you notice that from the text? Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree... To restore and rebuild the Jer Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be, notice this, seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza, moat, and even times of distress. Now, what these verses are telling us is this, that this group of 77s is broken up into three time frames. Are you with me? Some of you are like, no. <laughs> All right, just stay with me. Hang with me. Hang with me. Broken up into three time frames. The first one that we see is seven. So let's do the math. Seven times seven? Forty-nine. Okay, that's the first time frame. All right? Sixty-two times seven? Oh, that's where I had my phone out. Um, Four hundred and... 
34, thank you. Look at that. Y'all are awesome. So what we have is that first 49 years, the temple rebuilt, the exile over, returned to Jerusalem. And then he does something. Gabriel tells him, you add 7 and 62, which is 69. And from the beginning of the decree to the end of the 69th year, that's when Messiah will come. That's when Messiah will come. I don't know why God in His sovereignty just didn't make this easier um, or give us, a, uh, give us a slideshow or something like that to make it easier for people like me. But this is how God has chosen to reveal Himself and His prophecy. And so what I want you to know is as we look at these numbers, there's two ways of interpreting these numbers. Well, there's more ways. But the main two ways are this. Do we look at these numbers as figuratively? And when I mean that, some people on the other side of the aisle who want to take everything ultra, ultra literal would say, oh, oh, Lewis, you can't do that. But what has been suggested is that when God says that we are supposed to forgive somebody, how many times? 70 times 7, which is what? 40 and 90. Does that mean on the 491st time that I don't have to forgive Whit anymore? No. <laughs> yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> it's figurative, but it's literal, right? So, so some people, some schools of thought have taken this extremely literal. Some people have taken this extremely figurative. And most of us take it as a combination of the two. And here's the main point that I want to get across. And I'm going to tell you how wild this gets you may say it's already wild but i'll tell you how wild it gets what is amazing to me what is amazing to me is that when you punch in those 480 some odd years guess what we get to the time and life of christ okay now what's debated wildly is this when so it says 483 years from the decree which decree are we talking about the one in ezra the one in nehemiah you know, there's debate all the way through. Um, this really cool thing happened, and I'll tell you the really cool thing. A lot of people think it was in Nehemiah chapter 2, and that makes some sense to me and to a lot of people, which would have been around 444 B.C. And if you do the math, but here's how you have to do the math. Their calendars weren't 365 days. So you've got to go off 360 days. You've got to add in leap years. And then the day wasn't a full day. So when you run all the calculations, and that sounds crazy, so then you get a number of days, and then you divide it by 365, right? Because you can, then you put our calendar. So guess what happens? Guess what year that comes to be? 33 A.D. 33 A.D. The significance of that is that most historians believe that 33 A.D. was the last year of Christ's life which doesn't end the debate among people in this text, because then what they're saying is, oh, this time of the Messiah, some people believe it's His baptism. Some people believe it's the triumphant entry. Some people believe... It's wild. It's all over the place. And I have no idea. But what I do know, and is amazing to me, is if you think about this, Daniel was given this vision and wrote this down it's amazing to me the accuracy of this prophecy. 
the Messiah came. The Messiah came. All right, let's pause. Let's take a deep collective breath. (laughs) And let's stop and step back and look at the big picture. The big picture here is that God is not done with His children, the Israelites. And one of the things that, that I think is not brought out far, not often enough, and uh, as I've done a lot of reading, um, scarcely if anyone brings this out. In fact, they're so concentrated on the numbers and when are we going to start this and in this and this and this. That one of the things that's not brought out is, is, think about this. Think if you were an Israelite in captivity, and this was the prophecy that you received, It's not very good news. If your focus is on yourself and that you're in captivity, this is not great news. Do you understand what I mean by that? That as you begin to look at this prophecy, you begin to say, man, there are a lot of hard things ahead. There are a lot of difficulties ahead. And I'm not even going to be alive when the Messiah comes. So... What do you think the temptation would be? You know, I only live once. I might as well make it as best for me as I can. I want to ask here in this pause, what's your expectation for God's plan in your life? Which timetable are you living according to? Are you trusting that God's timetable is better than your timetable? Are you believing that God is at work doing something much bigger than you could ever imagine in your life? Does knowing that our God is this big and this mighty and this sovereign and this complex, does it bring you comfort? Does it bring you comfort to know that this world, your world, even when it feels like it's spiraling out of control, even when it feels like there's no rhyme or reasons to things, does it bring you comfort to know that it's not out of control? Spinning off to nowhere. You see, in the New Testament, we're told over and over and over that one of the things that we are to take heart in and one of the things that is to give us courage and one of the things that prompts us to act and to live lives that are risky for the sake of the gospel is that the end is sure. But so many times in our lives, we are chained to the present. And we are intoxicated with the pleasures of our own world and our own day and time versus allowing ourselves to look beyond what we can see and trust in the word of the scripture, trust in the promise of God and live the kind of life that is spilled out for the gospel. The other thing that I want us to see that I've alluded to in this little pause in the middle here is that in this passage, God is saying that He will send the Messiah, and I don't want us to miss and celebrate that the Messiah has come. 
And it means everything. It means everything. That these people were looking forward. And from where we stand, we're looking backward to the work that Christ completed on the cross for us. And we're looking forward to the fact that there will be a day that He returns again. And don't miss this. Just as He's saying that He will put an end to their sin make atonement for their iniquity, and bring an everlasting righteousness that, praise God, He has done that. And we must take a moment, we must take time and marvel at the gospel planted right in the middle of this prophecy. Okay. All right. Back to our math. Back to our math. So now we get into the heavy of heavies. This math is a little easier. Are you ready? 70 minus 69 is what? 1. Alright. So there's three time periods. We had the rebuilding. 7 sevens. We had 62. The sum of that is 69 until the Messiah comes. And then, and then, here, starting in verse 26, we have the final week or the last seven years of prophecy in the book of Daniel. And this is the most debated uh, part of this passage. And every aspect of this passage is debated. And to be honest with you, um, no one agrees on all the details of this. And I'm just going to give you just a little sample. And I'm not going to... We're not going to come to a conclusion. I just want you to know how difficult this can be. Just take the word prince in this section. Just take the word prince in this section. In verse 25, we see this. Messiah, the prince. You see that? So who is the prince in verse 25? Easy. The Messiah. Jesus. Okay? Then notice this. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Is this the same prince? Most people don't believe it is. Some people believe it is. Some people would say, oh no, the Jews were blamed for the destruction of the sanctuary. But others would say, oh, that's preposterous. We don't know. So we have another prince, another interpretation of this word prince will destroy the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolation, determined. And then notice this, verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Who is the he? Is it the Antichrist? Is it the prince? Is it Titus, the guy that destroyed the temple in 70 AD? Is it Jesus? We don't know. Thousands and thousands and thousands of pages from good Bible-believing theologians have been written on this. Some of you in this room, in fact, if I could show a, a show, you don't have to show your hands, but there's a certain age group here that many of us, and I grew up at the end of it, grew up where evangelists would still come through and we'd still have prophecy conferences. Many of us grew up in that. And remember, my, one of my favorite ones was the locusts um, were helicopters. You remember that? Or the great bear coming from the north. And so when the Soviet Union fell, it was like, oh no, what happens to our prophecy now? We've got to go change the charts and this sort of thing. And it just became, whew. Many of us grew up in that, right? 
if this is hard. This is difficult. And what, I, what, I, what I'm just trying to show you is that a lot of this we don't know. But I want to talk about what we do know. The first thing I want, to, I want you to see that we do know is that in verse 26 it says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the prediction of Him being crucified on the cross with nothing. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man has what? Has nowhere to lay His head. Jesus Christ had nothing. The second thing that I want you to see that takes place is that the city, the temple, will be destroyed. The city and the sanctuary, verse six, verse 26. The other thing, in verse 27, it says that the offerings will stop. Again, in verse 27, it says the, that the punishment will be poured out on the desolator. And in verse 24, in verse 24, it says that the perfect kingdom will arrive. The problem, all of these things are going to happen in the last week. The problem is that it's very fuzzy as to when it's going to happen. Now, I'm not going to lay out all the views, um, um, but I'm just going to talk about just two that, that I think are very good views. Um, and I'm not even going to describe what their name means. You can actually uh, do a Wikipedia search and it'll do a really good explanation of what these two views are. The first one is the amillennialist. And historically, they've gotten a really bad rap, but man, they have some really strong arguments. That if you read a guy like Sam Storms, he's got a lot of articles out there, he's got a really good book out there, um, and it's, he's very accessible, um, but uh, they've got some really strong arguments. And essentially, this view holds that the 70 weeks have already happened. In other words, that there was the 69 weeks and then they went right into the last week or seven years. And so uh, by the destruction of the temple in AD 70, um, everything in this prophecy was complete. And so the next event that will happen is Christ will come, uh, defeat Satan. <laughs> then we get in the book of Revelation. We'll defeat, totally defeat Satan and, uh, and we will live forever with Christ in eternity. The other view, and this view, that, that view is dismissed way too quickly, I think. I think, it, you know, if, if you're into this t- sort of thing, um, I, and if you were, used to be into this sort of thing, or you haven't read anything within the past 30, 40, 50 years, um, I would encourage you to confuse yourself by reading some of these, uh, by reading some of these guys. The other view is that these, this last seven years is still future. This position really holds that verse 26 um, uh, is not part of that last seven weeks. And so a lot of people in this camp, this would be a premillennialist camp, hold that all these things happened. Uh, the Messiah was killed, this, the sanctuary was, the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, um, and that then there is a future seven years that will happen that has not started yet. And this is known as the gap theory. Not the clothing store. But there's a gap in time. Uh, the way that Gary taught this years ago, if you were here, was that there was almost like a clock and it just stopped and it hasn't started back yet. Um, let me say this. I, and Gary's going to kill me. 
It's a very unnatural reading of this text. Now, it's the one that I kind of think makes the most sense, but not from the book of Daniel. The reason I think this makes the most sense is this. In Acts chapter 1, uh, verse six, uh, 6 and 7, it says this, when, the Lord, when they had come together and they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. So they're asking, is this the end of time? Notice what he says. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That word fixed is the same word that is used um, in, in this prophecy where it says, 70 weeks have been decreed, fixed. I think it makes sense that there's still a future time when these sort of things will take place. Now, again, even when we go there, uh, the opinions just run rampant. And and there are even multiple camps under the premillennialist temp. You know, you've got the dispensational uh, uh, group, and then you've got the historic premillennialist group. If you put a gun to my head this morning and told me that I had to choose one, I, you know, I, okay, you know, the historic premillennialism gives me a lot of wiggle room. And I know that's not very scholarly or very whatever, but it fits the best for me at this point. Next week, it will probably change. I, I want to read another quote to you here. I am keenly aware, uh, now I have to say this, um, I'm going I'm to out this guy. So um, Chuck Barrett over at the uh, Wayside Presbyterian, love Chuck. His dad uh, teaches at Bob Jones University, is an Old Testament scholar, is a Hebrew scholar. And I was talking to Chuck about this, and Chuck said, you know, Lewis, I'm, I probably shouldn't out him. He's like, you know, Lewis, I, I just don't know where I stand on this either, but, which surprised me. And he said, you know, my dad, um, he said, I'm Presbyterian, so I kind of have to be amillennialist. So that's kind of naturally where I kind of start from. Uh, He said, my dad is a hardcore Presbyterian, but he had what he called his wandering years, where he was a historic premillennialist for a little while until he came back home. Uh, And probably much to his chagrin, he wrote wrote a, a commentary during that time, or at least a paper. And here's one of the things that he says. He says, I'm keenly aware of the many differing interpretations regarding the aspects of Daniel's prophecies that are yet unfulfilled. That's the nature of prophecy. We could conduct an exhaustive search of commentaries and still not find any two that agree tit for tat with every constituent part of Daniel's vision. Until the prophecies are fulfilled, the details and mechanics of the fulfillment may remain cryptic. If we keep, and then he talks about If we keep in mind that my objective is not to defend an eschatological program, but to instill within our hearts, here it is, but to instill within our hearts a reassuring confidence in God's sovereignty, then even those who may disagree with my eschatological presuppositions and particular analysis can benefit from this book. (laughs) In other words, in other words, We have no idea. We have no idea. And so you may say, and it's the title of the sermon, I think, who cares or does it matter? And I want to say, yes, it matters. 
This is God's Word. It's an inspired text. And we as stewards of God's Word need to study and we need to know the times. But we must keep this in perspective. We must keep this in perspective. One of the things, um, uh, one of the things is my, my mother, uh, when she retired from teaching, uh, watched way too much TBN those first couple of years. She was pretty sick. I think the germs were just coming to surface that she was around and her immune system was down. She watched way too much TBN. And so she would call me about the red heifer or the this or that or whatever. And she'd say, Louis, does that not excite you? I'm like, sure, Mom, it excites me, but... My concern is that all these guys are spending all this time doing all this stuff. How much time are they spending evangelizing? Are we looking at the times and saying, man, it sure seems that this is the projection that we're in. And does that make us hit the streets? Does prophecy, does prophecy encourage us to look at God and to look at His will and to be thankful that we're not in control and that we don't have to have it all figured out. Does it motivate us? Does it motivate our lives? You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is that uh, Jesus in Matthew 24 uh, and Paul, uh, when he was writing to the church at Thessalonica, uh, when they were asked, when will the, when will the end times come? Or... You know, it could have very easily been asked this way. Tell me about the 70th week of Daniel. Do you know what they both said? No one knows the time and day. But they didn't stop there, did they? They used words like thief in the night. They used words like be ready. They used words like be sober and be alert. And if we were to do a study on all those words, what, they, what, what we get from that is that we are not to be enamored with this world and miss what's going on around us. We're not to be lulled asleep. But as Christians, we are to know that this world is not our home. We are to know that our Lord Jesus will come back one day, whether in our lifetime or another. And we are to be ready and alert and on guard and working and doing what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to be encouraged and we are supposed to be emboldened. So I want to end this morning. We're going to end in two ways. The first thing I want to end this morning, and I think I would be amiss if I did not end this way, is this. I want to end this morning by asking you in two ways, are you ready? Are you ready? Maybe you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ. You've never heard anything like what we have talked about this morning, of that, that God is going to come back one day and He's going to gather His own. And maybe this morning you are at a place where you say, if the Lord came back, I would not go with Him or be with Him because I am not one of His children. And what I would just ask of you is if that is you, please find me today and I would love to have a conversation with you about how you can become one of God's children. And of course, the other encouragement that, that, that I've already stated but we want to reinstate is that I don't want us, it is my call as a pastor personally and to constantly uh, be delivering to you 
It is my call to rip away a worldview from you where you believe that this world is all we have and it's all we're living for. If that's where we're living, we are wasting our lives. And we are not ready and we're not alert. Now, this morning, we're going to end. I'm going to pray in a moment. And we're going to end with the Lord's Supper. But I want to read to you, I just thought this was fitting as we prepare to take the Lord's table. I want to read to you out of Matthew 26, verse 26 and 29. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread and after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Notice this, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, as we've hear, heard this prophecy of Daniel this morning, where I want us to be encouraged is that if you are a believer in Christ, one day, one day, we will partake of the cup with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I know, I feel in my own heart, in my own life, that some Sundays it would be easier just to um, divert from your text and to teach something else. But God, I am convinced because your word, your very word tells us that all Scripture is inspired and profitable. God, there are things in here that we don't understand. And God, I'm glad about that. It means that we, it puts us in the position that we're supposed to be in. Finite creatures. And you are far above us. Your ways are far above us. God, I want to pray this morning that we don't leave here confused or bewildered or um, eager to go home to our basement and to make more charts. But God, that we would leave here encouraged and burdened and emboldened. God, we thank you for your son Jesus. That you did send the Messiah. He did die. And we thank you that he will come back again. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If at this time.